there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Shep Messing, a broadcaster for MSG Network who talks about his legendary career, including with the New York Cosmos of Pele, Beckenbauer, and Canalia. We've had some great guests lately, including Kevin Williams, Jason Davis, and Crystal Dunn. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are now out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. Now, here's my interview with Shep Messing. Our guest now is one of the most colorful figures in the history of American soccer. Shep Messing had a long career as a goalkeeper at Harvard University with the 1972 U.S. Men's Olympic team, with pro teams like the New York Arrows indoor team, and most famously with the 1977 NASL champion New York Cosmos with Pele, Franz Beckenbauer, and Giorgio Canalia, among others. These days, he broadcasts New York Red Bulls games for the MSG Network here in New York. Shep, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, Grant, it's it's my pleasure. And and really, I consider myself a senior spokesman for the sport. So I want to first congratulate you. I followed you for years for the great work you do supporting this sport that we love. And and your work pales in comparison, I'm afraid, to your wife, Celine. So kudos <laughs> to her for the work she does. Thank you. I really appreciate that and appreciate you saying that about her too. I'm really proud of her. Um, I hope that intro, we could have done a much longer intro because there's a lot to discuss with your career over the years. But I want to start, there's a lot of attention right now about the new video documentary on Pele on Netflix, which I have to admit, I still need to see. But this week I did do a rewatch of the film Once in a Lifetime about kind of the wild story of the New York cosmos in the 1970s. And you were all over this film. And personally, I thought you were fantastic in it. I encourage everyone to see it. I saw it on Amazon. What did you think about this movie, Once in a Lifetime, when you saw it? Well, Grant, you know, there are certain moments in your life that, that sort of carry you for the rest of your life. And that whole saga of the New York Cosmos and Pele and Beckenbauer and Giorgio, uh, to just put it in context, and I'll get back to what I thought about it, it, it was surreal. It was really a moment in time, really a period piece in New York. We had the son of Sam Killer loose. We had a blackout. We had a, a city in financial ruin. And really, it's a story about a, a team and a sport and a bunch of personalities that really had the ability to take a city on their shoulder and raise it up and capture the imagination first of New York and then the nation and and really the world. And it's one, I think, fascinating because it really can't be replicated. We all who were there say we talk about the cosmos before Pelé and after Pelé. And to your question, I'll never forget the the guys who did the documentary rounded us all up. Pele was there and Franz and Canalia, and they put us in a private theater at a club in New York to watch the premiere, just privately, nobody in attendance. And, and when it was over, they all were afraid of what Giorgio would say, right? Because he was portrayed as a, 
uh, Tony Soprano in, in, the, in the documentary. And so the producer stood up and looked at the back row and Giorgio stood up the way only Giorgio could and he, he nodded his head and he just clapped his hands. So they, they knew it was good. It, it was it was a good story, and they did a, a wonderful job telling it. Yeah, I actually saw it the first time I saw it. I was in Berlin, of all places, in early 2006. And there, I was there because there was a pre-World Cup event that Nike had organized with their top stars. So I got access to some of the top figures ahead of the World Cup. And our mutual friend Glenn Davis was there as well um, that weekend from Houston. And it happened to coincide with the weekend of the Berlin Film Festival. And so this movie had not been released yet publicly. And I had the luxury of being able, the privilege of being able to see it at the Berlin Film Festival. And like, just learned so much. It, it was, I, I just thought it was extremely well done. And, and the personalities were... I, it, it's something that every American soccer fan should see, especially if you weren't alive then. If you were alive then, you should see it too, because he probably like <laughs> followed it and loved it. But like, I, I think there's a there's so many more soccer fans in the U.S. right now, and U.S. national team fans that don't always know about the history, and the history is almost, I it's incredible. I I mean, like I I can only say that you know, like. I, I looked on your Twitter and you have a picture posted, I think is your pinned tweet that you helped carry Pele around on the field at Giants Stadium after his final farewell game as a player. How would you describe the relationship you had with him? Wow. This is obviously brings back great memories. So, but, but again, I'll, I'll tell a little story that leads up to answering the question because I'm a kid that was born in the Bronx I never saw a soccer ball until I was 16. Wow. So baseball player, basketball player, football, stickball in the streets. And then to go from first seeing a soccer ball when I'm 16, three years later being an All-American in college, five years later playing in the Olympic Games, and then I wake up at Yankee Stadium and Pele is my teammate. It, it's indescribable. And... and when Pele came to the Cosmos, I had, I had signed with the Cosmos after college, after the Olympics. And I was, I was a bad boy. I was always in trouble. I got put on waivers. I got cut from the team. And I had a hitchhike around trying to find another team. And I finally signed a contract in Boston. And I pick up a newspaper and see Pele has signed with the New York Cosmos. And I think my luck can't be any worse why didn't I shut my mouth, be a good guy, and still be on the Cosmos? Well, as it turned out, every game we played that year in the NASL, no draws. You go to a penalty kick shootout. So I'm playing for the Boston Minutemen. I'm leading the league in goalkeeping. We play a game at Yankee Stadium against the Cosmos. It's the first time I had seen Pelé. Sure enough, we go to a penalty kick shootout. I was pretty hot during the game. The fifth penalty kick is taken by Pelé. I get a hand on it. I save it. We win the game. The next week, their goalkeeper, Bob Rigby, breaks his collarbone. Pelé says, I want the Boston goalkeeper. So the next week, 
I fly down to New York. I come out of the dugout, Yankee Stadium, where I grew up in the Bronx, 100 yards away, and I'm being introduced at Yankee Stadium with Pele on my team. I, I was so scared, I thought I'd give up 10 goals in that game. But <laughs> to get back to Pele, and I know you've spent time with him, we're friends to this day. We formed a business together 20 years ago. I see him pandemic time, not so much, but when he comes to New York, we have dinner. I've never met for sure a better athlete and a better person. How do you go through your life being Pelé? And he used to tell me, you know, I close my eyes. It's the only time if I get on a plane or a bus or I'm someplace I make believe I'm asleep. So I get some relaxation. We share common hobbies. We fish together. He likes music. But with all the platitudes and fame he has, he's still a really, really decent, humble guy and, and really dedicates himself to, to children. As he said in that final game, the picture you alluded to, the game ended, Grant, and there were 77,000 people there and it was pouring rain, a monsoon when the game ended. And we spontaneously ran to Pelé and picked him up on our shoulders and circled the field while while the crowd applauded. What you can't see in that picture, though, is is when we got to where we started, Pele bent down and he whispered to me, "Cheppy, Cheppy, one more time around." So <laughs> he had a sense of humor, a great guy, a, a great friend. And as he said in that game when he took the microphone, "Remember our children, love, love, love." Pele is all about kids. And in all the years we traveled, no matter how many people I saw mob him, he would never turn away a child for an autograph. Great man. I also noticed you just got his uh, coronavirus vaccine yesterday. So uh, glad to see that. I hope he's doing okay health-wise and uh, for many more years to come. Um, You know, like I was around and wrote a book about this, uh, David Beckham and the LA Galaxy when Beckham first came in 2007. And it was a circus, you know? It was like the Galaxy went from one level to an entirely different level when you brought one of the most famous people in the world to join their team. But he was just one player, you know? Like like the Cosmos had Pele, Canalia, Beckenbauer, (laughs) Carlos Alberto in, in future years, like, how wild was it to play for the New York Cosmos, to live that experience in 1977 with the players on that team, with the atmosphere around that team, with the whole Studio 54 experience and everything else? So gr- great question. I read that book that you wrote about Beckham and when I, I, I loved it. And to your question, when I finished the book, I kind of chuckled and I said, <laughs> you know, Grant just wrote the book about David Beckham. I wish he were around to write our book because it was 10 times as big. It, <laughs> it really w- was. And, and it was a function of just what you said. The array of players, Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, uh, Giorgio Canalia, but also the times. It was the 70s. It was rock and roll. It was the marriage of our team, the Cosmos, to Mick Jagger and Peter Fram- Frampton and and the rock and rollers, Elton John. And, and, and so it was time 
times 10 in terms of especially when we traveled around the world as we did. So we'd play the season here, as you know, and then we'd go on tour in Asia, South America, Europe. And it was it was bonkers. I mean, so many stories I could tell you that you'd appreciate. <laughs> we we played a game in Rome against Lazio. And I'll never forget walking down the street with Giorgio Canaglia, the main drag the next day, and there were merchants throwing jewelry at him, gold watches and chains. And I, I, I'm the kid from the Bronx. I'm scooping him up, putting it in my pocket. And Giorgio is just, just walking there. We'd, we'd go to a nightclub at night in Rome, Jackie O's. And, it, you know, Giorgio comes to the front door They'd light his cigarette, they'd give him his Chivas Regal, they'd give him <laughs> slippers to put on. And Pele, I, I mean, forget about it. We, we took a train, never forget this one, going to Rome, we played in Sweden first, Malmo. And we took a train after the game to go to Rome. And in the middle of the night, I hear a ruckus, a ruckus, and, and they're dancing Brazilian girls. It, it turns out the... The girls from the Copacabana were on tour in Europe and they found out Pele was on the train. So look, it, it was it was everything rolled into one. And and the irony for me is during all those times and all the attention and all the glamour, when it came to the sport, these guys were serious. There was no fooling around. I mean, Beckenbauer stepping on the field, Giorgio Pele, it was all business. So it was a wild life around it. Uh, you know, the one thing you mentioned about the film that resonates with me is what Franz Beckenbauer said. He said, look, I I've played, I've won how many titles in Europe, how many championships with Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga, but the New York Cosmos to play with Pelé and 14 other nationalities, that was the greatest time of my life. And for Franz Beckenbauer to say that, wow. <laughs> Amazing. So you had been with the Cosmos back in 1973 when it was a totally bare bones outfit. But, and this is discussed in the movie as well, you got some significant attention when you posed nude, like all nude for a magazine. I can't imagine one of today's soccer stars doing that. Can you? What's the story here? <laughs> They're all great stories because they're all true. First of all, um, I got back from the Olympics and found out I had been drafted by a team in 1973 that I never heard of, the New York Cosmos. It was the first college draft in the history of the NASL. And I actually wasn't drafted by the Cosmos. I like this even more. I was drafted by the Montreal Olympique in the first or second pick, and the Cosmos had traded up for the pick for a guy named Flash Oliveira. That's who I got <laughs> traded for. So so I'm drafted by this team, uh, and I say, okay, what do I do now? I was also enrolled at Fordham Law School. Uh, had just started. So Gordon Bradley, the English coach, um, called me in, and he said, come down and work out, and you know we'll see how it goes before we decide whether to offer you a contract. So I go down to Hofstra, uh, a synthetic surface and I work out. Yeah, I think I'm pretty good. And and Gordon says to me after practice, okay, meet me at Burger King on Hempstead Turnpike after practice. So I go there 
And Gordon sits down and he, he orders a cheeseburger and French fries and a Coke for each of us. And he sits at the table and he said, I think you're pretty good. It's about what we expect. So we'll offer you what we offer rookies, $2,300. And, you know, I'm a Harvard guy. I'm smart. I'm at Fordham Law. I figure I'm going to negotiate. I, I'm trying to think, is that 2300 a game, 2300 a month? <laughs> and, and so I asked that to Gordon, and Gordon said, no, it's $2,300 for the season. So smart ass that I am, I said, well, Gordon, how would you feel if I told you I wanted to think about it? I'll never forget the look on his face. He took a bite of his cheeseburger and he said, I couldn't care less. <laughs> so so that's a, a long prelude to one day, Jim Bowden, who's a pitcher for the New York Yankees, called me and he said, look, there's, there's a magazine that wants me to pose nude in it. I don't want to do it. Do you want to do it? I said, how much do they pay? And I, I think they paid like, five or ten thousand dollars so i'll i'll finish the story by saying look i'm i'm a family i grew up in a family after the bronx uh five children a mother a college professor father an attorney my mother actually um, was ahead of her time a feminist uh, taught sex education in college uh, before it was really allowed so it was nothing out of the ordinary for me um, and I did it. And, and I was working three jobs at the time. I was playing for the Cosmos. I was going to law school. I was working at JFK at night. And I was teaching at a high school, Westbury High School. Wow. And when the magazine came out, as you described, it, it was full frontal. <laughs> the superintendent called me in and fired me. JFK Airport said, we don't care. And the Cosmos eventually put me on waivers. So, look, am I sorry I did it today? Uh, you know, probably I wouldn't do it again. But you know, I made I made good dollars. Oh man, what a story! That's incredible. Thanks for sharing. Um, are there any players from the Cosmos teams, in particular, that you still keep in touch with? So the answer is yes. You know, some of the, and I'm sure players today will tell you the same thing, Grant. When you're on a team that's something special, you develop friendships and a bond uh, where you you can go 20 years and not speak to them. And if you speak to them, it's just like yesterday. So for me, um, Pele for sure. Um, he has grandchildren who live near me. Uh, we see each other. We formed a business together 20 years ago. Uh, Franz has always been great, more reticent in the last years in, in terms of issues and, and health. But when he would frequent New York, he loves New York, uh, we'd always stay in touch. Werner Roth, uh, Bobby Smith, you know, it was the renegade Americans and the European superstars, right? Mm -hmm. So the guys like Beckenbauer and Pele and Giorgio, they looked at me and Smitty, Bobby Smith, like we were wild men. You know, long hair, <laughs> drinking beer, smoking cigarettes. They looked at us like we were crazy, right? And But they had an affinity for us. It was, I'm sure Beckham saw something similar with the American players when he came here. Mm -hmm. uh, but the international superstar on the same team, in the same hotel, on the same field as some long-haired hippie from the Bronx <laughs> drinking a beer. I mean, it was, but we, they, they gravitated to us 
because we offered them lessons as well, right? I never forget taking Franz Beckenbauer down Fifth Avenue. Remember, it's the 70s. And Franz is like, you know, is somebody going to recognize him? And he kind of wanted a cigarette and he was afraid somebody. I said, Franz, nobody knows who you are. <laughs> Have a cigarette. And I took him down. I took him to eat. You know, Franz at that time, had, he had curly hair, but he'd like straighten it. And I said, mm -hmm. it's, this is the 70s in New York, man. So I took him down to the village and that's when he started doing a fro, right? So, yeah. you know, I, I think the, the, the anonymity is part of what attracted them to be here. It, it's the same today, right? Whether, mm -hmm. whether it's Thierry Henry coming or, or when Beckham came, relative anonymity. You know, Beckenbauer at the time told the stories how he, he was afraid for his family in Germany. Uh, you know, Pele, a different character. He's, he's sort of beloved wherever he goes. Uh, but it was unique. And again, the relationships I, I cherish the most are, are the ones where you're polar opposites, me and Smitty and a Franz and a Giorgio. You know, Canalia would rail at us about, you know, you got to be a capitalist. If you have a good game, what do I do? I go in and I tell the boss I want more money. And if I... <laughs> If I don't score a goal, I put my head down and I apologize to the boss. So the, those, those dialogues were hilarious. Oh, shoot. Let's take a quick break from our interview with Shep Messing, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga, France's Ligon, or Copa Libertadores and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligon, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. You know what's interesting is the first time I actually came across you, I was, I was in Kansas City growing up. I was an indoor soccer fan of the Kansas City Comets in the 80s. And so the first time I, I wasn't really aware of the cosmos then, you know, and, and so I remember you played for the big, bad New York arrows with Steve jungle who seemed to win everything. And I'm wondering what stands out to you when you think back to, to those arrows teams and sort of the, the brief reign of pro indoor soccer in the U S yeah, Grant, I figured that. I was going to go there because I know you're a Kansas City guy and, and age-wise, the Comets would have been your team. And I heard the podcast you did as well with the recent uh, Kansas City people you knew who bought a team in Europe, I yeah. think, in Italy. Yeah. So they also talked about the Comets. Listen, 
I loved indoor soccer. I still do. And, and I was the first player. All leagues that make a move like that, they need one name player to jump. So uh, the Cosmos, Pele, the championship had been won. I went out and played, uh, signed a contract. I became actually the highest paid American player in history at the time. I was a free agent, signed in Oakland. And then indoor soccer was forming and they needed one player to, to jump leagues. And, and I was that player assigned with the arrows. And we, we, you're right. We were the powerhouse, right? Four, four championships in a row, our first four years. And I tell people and they really, they kind of look at me cross-eyed, but the best atmosphere and remember, I've played with Pelé in front of 77,000 people. The single best atmosphere I've ever been in was in St. Louis at the Checker Dome, New York Arrows against the St. Louis Steamers, game seven of the championships. We'd, we'd go back and forth. I'll tell you what, I've never been in a more electric atmosphere. And it was the same in Kansas City and Cleveland and Wichita. Uh, it was a wonderful time. It, there was a vacuum, obviously, in, in the outdoor game. I think somehow that indoor league over the years helped the demise of the NASL because there became a bidding war for players. San Diego Soccer's NASL tried to do an indoor. I think it's a, it's a time in the sport that's not remembered enough, but but great, great times. And, and look, one of the people say, what are you proud of? Look, I, I played in five championship games, one with the Cosmos, four with the Arrows, and I had five championship rings. So, you know, those were great times for us. I know you played at Harvard. Uh, I know you were on the 1972 U.S. Olympic team. So what was your story in those days about sort of your emergence as a soccer player? I think the beauty, you know, people ask me often, Grant, would, would I want to be, would I trade places with the guys today, Tim Howard, Weston McKinney, look at him, what's happening with him at Juventus. No, I wouldn't trade places for anything because my, my experience w was purely out of love of the sport and I didn't have a future planned, right? I mean, if I told my mother I wanted to play professional soccer or my father, they, they'd laugh. So I think there's so much pressure on young children today, boys and girls, as to, as to you know what they want to do, who they want to be. Mine was organic. It just happened. I really thought that every game or every year I played would be my last. When I graduated from Harvard, I knew I was going to the Olympics, and, and then I thought it was done. And then when I signed my first pro contract, I played 16 years, and I signed one-year contracts every year because I, I wanted to bet on myself and I figured every year would be the last. And I think, I think when you approach it that way, I think you enjoy it more. Uh, the only pressure I had was on myself for the next game. No, no big orchestrated plan to where I wanted to go with it. Just be the best I can and, and play it as long as I love it. Now, I have read that you were actually quite close to the, the tragic massacre of Israeli Jewish athletes at the Munich Olympics, is that accurate? Yeah, I, and you know, I knew you'd go there and I, I, I want you to because you know, with everything going on in the world today, um, the whole Zlatan Ibrahimovic and LeBron, key politics, you know, we know that story. 
Look, that's the Olympics for me, of course, were a turning point in many ways. But, you know, I remember when I was 10 years old, I had an Olympic party in my backyard, right? But I didn't know what sport. It was just like everything, a dream to go to the Olympics. So we were the first American team ever to go through qualified and make it to the Olympics. One prior team had gone many years before that didn't have to go through qualifying. So the first American team to get to the Olympics, and, you know, that's that's a dream come true, the pageantry, uh, the, the achievement just to get there. And then, and then for me personally and, and for everybody else there, it, it, it turned into a, a, you know, a horror show. I, I'm Jewish and I got a, a knock at my door at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, I opened the door and there were two German soldiers with machine guns and said, are you Shep Messing? And I, I took a step back because I didn't, really know what was going on. And they said, are, are you Jewish? I took another step back. And it was that nanosecond where I didn't know what was going to happen. And then they held up their a police ID and they said, please come with us. And so they, they took the Jewish athletes on the U.S. team, including Mark Spitz, uh, the swimmer, into protective custody for 24 hours. And, you know, as the world watched, as, as the Palestinian terrorist group Black September had scaled the fence and attacked the Israeli compound, which was really directly across from me, from our U.S. room about 25 yards away. Wow. And as the world watched, of course, it, it ended in, in the murder of 11 uh, athletes and coaches, one of them my friend, uh, David Berger. I was a weightlifter, uh, actually an attorney from Cleveland who I had known from the Pan American Games the year before. So that that unfolded the horror of it, and you know, so when I I, I just got on the next plane and flew home when when it was over, and and you know, there is no keeping politics and platforms out of out of sport, and and of course, you know, that was a. A different age you know they the terrorists imitated us the athletes what we used to do there was no security there was a main gate and mm -hmm. and we like all athletes we'd sneak out into munich and we'd grab a beer we'd be in our track suits and we'd we'd come back over and we'd scale the fence and kind of wave to the to the guards at the gate you know wearing our u.s track suits so a different age and and time, but it's, it's certainly, you, you know, look, over the course of lifetime, you know, the, the civilization, the horrors, the terrors that go on that we see today, uh, the social issues and causes, uh, you, you can either put your head down and, 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 and just say this is horrible, or you could try and do something about it. So, uh, you know, a lesson learned, but, but, Politics and social issues shouldn't be kept out of sports. Sports is a, a platform, hopefully, to do, do good. Thanks for sharing that. There's no easy way to seg out of that into a different topic, but I'm going to try. Um, are there times, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, that you wish the U.S. men's national team would have been qualifying for World Cups like they do regularly <laughs> most of the time now? Um when you were playing, like, and that you could have potentially had that experience of playing in a World Cup? You know, 
this is why I like your podcast, because it's interesting to talk to you. And, and the answer, Grant, is no. I, I, and again, look, it's just in my DNA. It's who I am. I, I enjoy the moment, right? So I wouldn't trade... I wouldn't trade the moments I had with the Olympic team and the U.S. national team. I'll, I'll give you another story. And there, no, it's not playing at a World Cup with all the hoopla and the pageantry and everything on the line. But my experiences with the U.S. national team, just as vivid and important to me. And, and that's why, look, it's human nature to have selective memory. You know, players today in any sport, if you ask a best baseball player who Kurt Flood is, they probably couldn't tell you right but free agency so my u.s national team experience is i get a call from u.s soccer on a on a wednesday and they say look can you get up to hartford on saturday we have a game right <laughs> we'll give you we'll give you 25 dollars per diem but you got to get there yourself you know drive gas so we'd go there we'd stay there on friday night and we didn't have enough money for food, so we drank beer. And then the game on Saturday, we literally, we played one game, I remember, and I won't name the, the names of the guys on the team, but it was a hot day. It was like one o'clock. And during the national anthem, two of my teammates were throwing up beer from the night before. So we, we still played hard in the game. I think we lost seven nothing, but look, it, it's all about the relationships and the teammates and the friendships. And, and it's easier for me to say in regard to the U.S. men's national team, because what I had with Pele and Franz and the Cosmos going to China, playing in China before, 19, you know, 1977, right. and then going back there, you know, to Beijing for the Olympics, a different China, going to Brazil and playing at Maracanã, we, we had 100 105,000 people watching us at that game. So, so no, I, I don't end. I, look, I applaud it. I mean, Weston McKinney, I, I'm so happy for him this week. I, I love the guys that have a platform uh, at, at a World Cup, but but no, I, I enjoyed every moment I had and tried to make the best of it. We're talking to Shep Messing here. Really appreciate you taking this much time. Got a couple of more questions for you. I always enjoy listening to your MSG broadcasts on the New York Red Bulls, which you've been doing for quite a while now. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Red Bulls these days? Well, first of all, thanks, Grant. I, I love broadcasting. And again, you know, I segued right from 16 years playing professionally into the broadcast booth, and, and, and I love it. I, I, I go into every game fresh-eyed, do my work, but I'm getting paid to call the sport I love so I love it, I, and I try and bring that energy to the broadcast. What do I think about the Red Bulls? I told MSG just a month ago, I said, and I've told the people at Red Bull that I work with, I've never been more excited about where they're at because I didn't know where they've been at the last couple of years. They went high profile, as we all know, signed Tim Cahill, Thierry Henry, Rafa Marquez. They tried that. It didn't work out. There's a new sheriff in town, in, in Kevin Thelwell. Uh, I think the Red Bull Global Network is, is, is getting better in terms of working with each other. Uh, look, we all had fun with Jesse Marsh and what he did, and we revel in his success uh, that he's having now. Uh, but right now, I'm, I'm excited to see what this team does. The team, I mean Kevin Thelwell at the top, Gerhard Struber as the coach. 
as an analyst, I'm still worried about where the goals are going to come from, right? Since mm -hmm. Bradley Wright Phillips is gone, I have a, a Brazilian striker, Fabio. You know, we don't know too much about him. But it's predictable that they're going to be a high-paced, high-pressing team, press centrally in the midfield, try and force turnovers. That's the, the Red Bull DNA. Uh, but I'm excited. They're young, they're fast, they're hungry. Look, I keep telling them the same thing. I'm friends with Walt Frazier. We've known each other for years when he won his championship ring with the Knicks and I won it with the Cosmos. And now we're both in the broadcast booth uh, the last 20 years at MSG. And we joke around, Walt and I, Clyde. And he, hey, Red Bulls, you gotta, if you win here, get a ring. Go get a ring in this city. So until they win MLS Cup, uh, you know, that's what they've got to do. And I'm excited that at least they have a direction. Knicks, by the way, not doing so badly lately. We'll, we'll see how that progresses uh, as time goes on here in the city. Um, New York City has two MLS teams, obviously, the Red Bulls and NYCFC. There's an NWSL team, Sky Blue FC, which is going to play more games uh, in the stadium in Jersey, which is great. But how do we get New York New York City to care about pro soccer again, like it did for the Cosmos in the late 70s. And is that even attainable? Is that like something that is is almost not fair to ask? Boy, Grant, you're the one guy that would be in maybe as good a position as me to answer that question. Uh, I don't know if it's attainable. I really don't because you know New York, not just New York soccer, you know New York. You know, you go big or go home, whether it's Broadway, whether it's theater, whether it's the Metropolitan, you know, opera. I mean, so can you replicate what the Cosmos did? No, you can't. You can't go out and sign, you know, Messi or Ronaldo and Amape. You just can't do it. Um, if you could, Look, we see here when the big teams, Barcelona, Man United, or the Mexican national team play, we, we know it's sold out no matter where they play. Um, so can the MLS teams achieve it? I don't think it's realistic. I mean, I hope, I hope one day it is only because this is our home, uh, yours and mine, and it's, it's where I've had my success. And I got to tell you, and you know it, there is no better feeling than being in New York playing in front of 70,000 people and, and winning the whole thing. Uh, I just don't know how NYCFC, even if they won it, or Red Bull, if they won MLS Cup, I don't think it would resonate in the same manner. I do. I suspect you saw this report as well last summer when Messi was trying to get out of Barcelona, ended up staying for at least this season, that supposedly reports came out that that city football group was offering like a five-year contract to Messi, which included like three years at man city and then the final two at nycfc that seemed like a plausible offer a plausible report you know i also have joked like that cristiano ronaldo at inter miami in in two years and Messi at NYCFC in a couple of years could potentially happen. Do you think that would move the needle? <sighs> Look, what I what what I would love to see happen, which will never happen, and I'm not I'm not critical of of Major League Soccer for it because they've run a a super business for 25 years. At a certain point, 
you got to take the reins off, right? Let people yeah. compete. So I don't think it's one player. I don't think it's a Messi or Ronaldo at Inter Miami. Let people spend whatever they want to spend. Now, I know the pushback against that, but, you know, I was looking the other day or maybe today that, you know, Manchester City in the Premier League, they had about 300 million pounds of talent sitting on the bench, not in the starting 11, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we can't compete with that. And the one player, whether it's Beckham or Thierry Henry or, or Ronaldo or Messi, I think the only way that happens is, you know, go to the bank, open it up and let people compete. I wanted to wrap up with a straightforward question, Shep. What are you most excited about these days on the American soccer landscape? Wow. Good one. All right, let's get pumped up. I'm not Jason, I'm not Jason Davis here taking us down. I'm getting us pumped up. Look, I'm excited about all of it. Look, Weston McKinney with the deal he's just signed and how he's doing at Juventus and Gio Reyna and Pulisic. Look, you got to be excited about the young talent. And, and I'm excited. I'm excited about the women. I'm a women's supporter in sports. College sports, basketball, soccer, of course. The only thing I'd like better than seeing Weston McKinney get that monster contract would be see Crystal Dunn get it or Midge Purse or Rose Lavelle, right? So I think women's soccer is taken off as it should. And, and I'm excited about really across the board, both our national team programs. I'm a little sketchy on the Olympics, right? Because we got to start qualifying for the Olympics and, and we've missed too many cycles there. And the program, the program. I'll tell you what I'm not excited about and then I'll, I'll leave on a, on a positive note. All the good stuff, Grant, that's going on in this country, I hate what, what's happening with, with the youngest kids in youth development, boys and girls, because irrefutable data, right? The numbers are going down. 70% of kids in all sports, but soccer's our sport, they're dropping out when they're 14. That's not good enough. Uh, we're idiots at the youth soccer level. Idiots. Stupid. Let the kids have fun. Let them play five against five. Stop with your idiotic tournaments out of state. Let the kids have fun. In the end, they'll stick with the game, boys and girls. In the end, they'll have more creativity, more flair, because we take that out of them at a young age. I see it all over fields in New York, on Long Island, in New Jersey. It's a disgrace what we do to the young girls and boys. Look for every Weston McKinney or Gio Reyna or Rose Lavelle or Midge Purse, you know, what about the other hundreds of thousands, millions of kids who are dropping out at a young age because of the idiotic parents and coaches who are just making it all pressure? That's what I want to end with. Get rid of it. And we get rid of that. <laughs> uh, I'm thrilled with everything else. Shep Massing calls New York Red Bulls games for the MSG Network, among other things these days. Shep, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, Grant, I knew I'd enjoy doing this with you, so thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Shep Messing as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.